Um, we are entering Lent. How many of you grew up in, in a church community which was more liturgical? And, and like I didn't at all. And so I've discovered it later in life, and I find it beautiful. I love it. I think it's just uh, beautiful. You know, to me, anything older than like 20 years, I was like, ah, we don't do that stuff anymore. Um, and, and, and I've kind of re- I've had this um, introduction to so many things that, that Christians have been doing for like thousands of years, and there's roots to it, and there's beauty. So today is Ash Wednesday, um, and that starts a, a process. Basically, it's 40 days between now and Easter, not counting the Sundays. And then the, the last week before Easter is Holy Week, and that gets kicked off by Palm Sunday, which happens the Sunday before Easter. And then there's um, Maundy Thursday, which commemorates um, the last Passover that was had, that, that Jesus had with his disciples. There's Good Friday. I hope you will join us for a Good Friday service. Uh, that'll be in the main auditorium. And then, of course, uh, uh, Easter, Easter Sunday. So that's, that's, that's where we're entering. Oftentimes, Christians have, uh, throughout the years, decided for Lent to, to sacrifice or give something up, not as earning anything, but as a reminder of, oh, Jesus gave up a lot. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, anytime I say no to something, if it's you know, carbs or whatever it might be, I'm reminded like, oh, this is a sacrifice. And then I go, oh yeah, Jesus sacrificed for me. So, so oftentimes people will choose to, you know, to give something up like that or, or sacrifice in some way. And, and it's not a sad time, but it's, it's a time to remember the great sacrifice that was made uh, from our king. And so a beautiful time that, that we're entering into here. I, I would encourage you maybe even make this a time to say, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to press in over these next 40-some days and maybe engage with Scripture a little bit more, or I'm going to find a Lent devotional, and I'm, you know, I'm going to do that. So a lot of ideas if you're interested in doing something along those lines. Um, I want to show, back when I was a, I, I used to teach high school before I came on staff here 16 years ago, and the days when like I didn't want to do anything, this is like a lazy teacher thing, I'd be like, we're watching, we're watching a movie today, guys, right? Didn't matter if it like, had anything to do with it, they didn't care, and I didn't care. Um, well, I want us to watch a short film. It's not because I'm lazy, I promise. I will probably go over, because I have too much content here. But it's about a four-minute video. If you remember week two, um, I talked about this idea um, that the Bible Project kind of tried to connect some dots on about thinking about creation and ourselves specifically as trees. Do you remember that? And, and trees and mountains. And they, they just came out with their, their latest video that talks about the tree of life. And it, it I think, will, will set us up well for where we're going this evening. So watch, watch these next four minutes here. The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the tree of life. So what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it, or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, 
the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. And when humans do that, it leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. And so here's the thing. Both trees look beautiful, but one of them is a false tree of life. And the humans take from this false tree of life. And they're exiled from the garden for good. Which raises the question, can anyone ever get back to the tree of life? Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses, and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush, where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the tree of life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. But Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. Well, it seemed that way. But Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it, helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden which is also a kind of temple, with the tree of life at its center, providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. Great video, huh? Isn't that good? Um, all their videos are so wonderful, but this one sets up so well this idea of what Paul picks up on. He, he, he's connecting another dot uh, of what Jesus picks up on. Read with me John 15, 1 through 5, or uh, look as I read it. It should be up on the screens. These are Jesus' words. Now, picking up again on all of this rich imagery, 
he says this, I am the true vine. Because remember all the false ones? <laughs> I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And then he says, remain in me. That's the command. Remain in me. So uh, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So what Jesus is claiming, Paul talks about this. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's going on and explaining this in more detail. And he's saying what Jesus is doing in coming is he's, he's taking all of, all of the people, the people who at, at Babel were split up, you know, the, uh, Babel. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 talks about how God disinherited the nations. And, and what Jesus said he's doing is that he's taking all of those disinherited nations, all of those other people, and he's making a new humanity. Paul actually uses that phrase, a new humanity, because the old one is dying. It doesn't work. It's continually self-destructive. So he says, I'm going to make a new humanity. Well, the question becomes, how is he going to make a new humanity? And he says, I'm going to give you my life. You, again, you think of this tree imagery. I'm, I'm going to give you my life that will transform what the, the deadness inside you so that you'll actually produce fruit. And of course, that's exactly what Paul picks up on in Galatians 5, right? Galatians 5, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, and, and remember, the Spirit is now residing inside followers of Jesus. That's, that's the sap, that's the life. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, kindness, and goodness. It's faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And then when he says against these things, there is no law, meaning when you have those things, law is not needed. Law codes grow thick and large when there's no self-control in a community, right? So he's saying there's no need for law when the inside life has been so changed, so transformed that it's naturally looking like this. And of course, the picture of what this is, it's someone we know very well. <laughs> These words describe Jesus. I mean, that is a picture of that vine, of that tree. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at the, the sixth one. Remember, we said there are three groups of three, um, and we're, on to, we're at the, the last section of the second triad, <laughs> which is goodness, looking at goodness. Um, it's interesting, the, the, the Greek word for goodness, it's agathos, agathosune. Agathosune is the Greek word. Anyone here know anyone named Agatha? You know, that's, that's this name. Agathosune is just transliterated. And so the name Agatha, or Aggie, if you know anyone like that, that their name means good. Um, what's, what I realize my problem with understanding goodness as I think about it, it's, it, um, I'll, I'll kind of set it up like this. Uh, I've got four kids. And I remember oftentimes, especially when they were little, when we would maybe leave them with a the babysitter or we would take them to grandma and grandpa's and we'd leave them, I would always say, now, be good, right? 
I mean, like parents, you know what I mean to this, right? You're like, be good while I'm gone, right? And then when I'd come home, I'd say, were you good? And they go, oh, I was very good. I was very good. Now, what they, did they mean by very good is like, man, I went and I mowed the neighbor's lawn. Like, I, I was so good. Like, I went out and I, you know, helped a needy person on the street. No, what they mean is like, I didn't like light the cat on fire, right? I didn't take my little brother's head and put it in the toilet, you know? Like, I didn't break anything. And then I'm like, you were good, right? Like, I'm, ve- I'm very pleased when my kids, I'd come home and it's like, there's no problems? I'm like, you are very good. You know what I mean by that? So it's like my, my definition of good, and even what I think I've taught my kids, good is when you don't blow anything up, <laughs> right? It's almost like if he'd say, I didn't do anything. I literally sat here and did nothing. Like, well, that's very good, right? Do you see how that's, that's a shallow, uh, anemic view of whatever this goodness is here? I define it as just not blowing something up, and that's goodness, and that's how I oftentimes uh, tend to think of it. Um, last week, uh, Dick Foth was here. He spoke about kindness, Right, did a wonderful job. Always love hearing Pastor Dick Foth. Kindness and goodness, all of these sides of this sort of same fruit have overlap. You know what I mean? Like there's, you can't, you can't have one without sort of talking about the other. The kindness and goodness probably have the most overlap of these two. They're oftentimes uh, put together in texts. <clears throat> but the word goodness, um, I want us to try to expand our mind a little bit on maybe what it means, because our, our English word, you know, it just doesn't quite get at it, because like I said, I, 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 I give examples of goodness, meaning you did nothing good, you just didn't do anything bad, right? And we could give a lot of other examples of how our concept of goodness, it's just not quite all there. So let me give you another word that gets at, at least when we think about the um, agathosune, what, what that means when he's talking about it. Oftentimes, uh, agathosune refers to generosity. Generosity. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told? He, um, of course, he's using another vineyard one, right? Because this is in their minds. It's like hardwired in the Second Temple Jew mind. And he said there, there, was, a, there was a vineyard owner, and uh, one day he, he knew he had to get some work done, and so he, hi- he hired some workers early in the morning, and he said, I'll pay you a day's wage, whatever that was you know, agreed upon. I'll pay you a day's wage. You start now. It's early in the morning. At the end of the day, I'll give you your payment. So they're working all day long. Well, just like an hour or two before the end of the day, sundown's coming, he finds a couple other people. They need to feed their families. They, they're looking for work. And he says, he says, you come and work for me, and I'll pay you. So they've only worked like an hour, two hours. At the end of the day, they show up, and they all get the same amount of money. And the guys who've been working all day long, they start complaining, and they're like, this, this isn't right. This isn't just in Jesus' parable. And in it, he, he, um, he uses this very word. Um, he says to them, the people who are complaining, this is, uh, this is Matthew 20. The workers who are complaining, he says, um, are you envious because I am agathosenu? Are, 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 you, are you upset because I'm good? But it's more of a generous slant. You get that idea? So, so this word, what Paul, and it's the exact same word Paul uses in Galatians 5, what Jesus, what Jesus uses here, goodness has to do with like, almost like over, like bubbling over kindness, going a little beyond what is needed or what's even 
expected. So Jesus says, good people don't always worry about doing what's strictly fair. <laughs> good people rather err on the side, if you can say that, err on the side of generosity. Goodness is erring on the side of kindness. Uh, Christopher Wright, um, a, a minister, wrote these words. Let me read them to you. He says, so when we associate the word good with a title or a function, uh, think, for example, a good parent, a good teacher, a good police officer, a good doctor, we sometimes mean not only that the person is good at something, like they're competent, but also that the person knows how to go beyond the strict limits of what the role demands. Are you with me on that? And acts with some grace or generosity of spirit. And he says, you know, we have the phrase, out of the goodness of my heart. He says that's where we get it from. It's the idea of kind of going beyond just expectations, going just beyond mere roles, and, and doing this sort of generous thing that isn't even expected. It's not in your job description, and yet doing it anyway. So good, it's more than just not doing bad things. It's generous. It's like extreme generosity. But what lies at the heart of goodness? You know what I mean by that? Like, what is it that, that's deep, deep down? What quality do we see in someone when we go, they're a really good police officer? Man, they're an excellent. And again, not talking about their competency. We're saying there's just something to be, you know, beyond. What, what is it? One thing I would suggest is integrity. So there's generosity wrapped up in goodness, but there's also integrity. And what I mean by this is the, the absence of any kind of pretense. Um, what's the thing you say for what you see is what you get? Wissy wig, is that it? Wissy wig is what you see is what you get kind of thing. That's kind of the quality of a person who's good. What you see outwardly, that's what's really there inwardly. They are everything they appear to be. The, the, the words and behavior on the outside completely match what's going on in the inside. And when they do good, uh, it's not play acting. They're, they're not doing good in order to kind of, you know, get the photo shoot or like, the, you know, the three minutes of, of attention. You, anyone here ever uh, used to watch Seinfeld? I have so many life references to Seinfeld because it's just a wonderful show. Do you know George Costanza? So George Costanza has to go, he's, um, he's working for, it was uh, Mr. Steinbrenner, and Mr. Steinbrenner sends George to go get some, um, what's the pizza that's rolled, calzone, some calzones, and so he goes into the Italian place, and George is super cheap, like he never tips, he's super, super cheap. Well, he's got someone else's money because he's going to get the calzones for Mr. Steinbrenner, and so he's in line, and this Italian place, guy's behind the counter and so he's like hey you know what uh, I always like to take care of you know you know people so just as he's about to put the money in the guy turns around and walks away and so he drops it in there and the guy didn't see it and George is just like because oh. like he really wa he wants to be seen as a person who's generous and he's the cheapest dude in the world so he reaches in there to get it out to put it back in when the guy's there well the guy sees him you know he's like what are you doing he grabs his arm kicks up you know he can never go back and you know buy calzones there George is not a good person, okay? George, George does not have this quality of being this way regardless of who's looking or who's not <clears throat> looking. Um, good people do what they do simply because it's the right thing to do. Um, a, a person who is acting out of goodness, it, it's close to what, remember Jesus used the phrase um, pure of heart? Remember that phrase? In the Beatitudes, someone's pure of heart. Pure of heart has the idea of the, there's, a, there's a transparency. 
you can see right through and you can see everything that's there. <clears throat> Most simply though, you can depend upon a person who is good because they're gonna do what they said they will do. They, they keep their word um, and do what is right, again, simply because it is the right thing to do. So there's generosity, there's dependability, always, always sure, always there. And see, that's why good, it is, if not the, it is a fundamental um, frequent affirmation of God in the Bible constantly. Read through the Psalms sometimes, and look how often the psalmist is affirming God is good. It's this overflowing generosity thing, and this like, like always the same in any way. Psalm 136.1 says, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. Psalm 119.68, he's speaking to God, and he says, you are good, and what you do is good. Uh, do you remember when Moses, I think this is in, um, yeah, yeah, Exodus 33, Moses says, God, I want to I wanna see your glory. You remember that? He's up on the mountain. He says, God, I want to see your glory. And you know what God says to him? It's so interesting. He doesn't say, okay, let you see my glory. He says, um, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Isn't that interesting? I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh which is to say, that's the core of who I am. I am this dependable, generous, overflowing being. That's why later when Moses uh, writes this uh, poem in Deuteronomy 32, he says, he is the rock. His works are perfect. All of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So to say God is good you remember a time when someone comes up to Jesus and they say, good teacher? Remember that? You remember his response? It's kind of strange. He said, well, no one's good but God. What he's pushing him to say is don't throw that word around loosely. If you call me good, you have to admit I am divine. <laughs> um, there's a chasm between good and what you think of as good. So to say God is good is to say he's all these things we've been talking about. Um, God is generous. God is trust worthy, without any deception, without any crookedness. He is like that always, through and through like the rock that Moses talked about. It's pure rock. It's not hollow on the inside. And this is his character and all of his actions. In fact, good, the goodness of God, um, it's axiomatic in the Bible. Do you know what that means? Any, any math people here? I am this is the extent of my math knowledge, okay? I despise math, absolutely despise it. In, in math, um, when, when you would refer to something that's an axiom, it's uh, basically what you're saying is it is the truth that, uh, that is foundational and doesn't change regardless of what other calculations you might do. This part of it is axiomatic. It does not change. It is absolutely certain. So if there's something wrong and, you know, the equation out here, you know, once you get out here, it's not because this was wrong. <laughs> Something went wrong out here, but the axiomatic part of the, we know that is certain. And, and the pattern or the parallel is no matter what circumstances, things out here you might have, and you're like, man, God, God's not good. <laughs> no, something went wrong out here, but God, God is absolutely good and fully good. 
even though things in the equation out here are going awry and they're off and I can't figure out why, it's not because of the axiomatic thing at the very beginning. So for us as, as, as humans who are not God, when we think about, because that's what Paul's talking about when he says goodness, he's talking about in our relationships, and we've been saying that for us, actions that are good are ones that are taken when the real option to choose the easier way is a possibility. Are you with me on that? When I have the possibility of not holding to my word, <laughs> and I still do, that's good. So goodness assumes that I can, ah, I'm going to go the easy way out. I'm, 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 I'm not going to do that. There's one of the Psalms that says, a good person um, swears to his own hurt which is an interesting picture, meaning I made that promise. It's not going to benefit me now. Maybe something's changed. I'm going to hold to my word. That's goodness because I'm going to do something even though it's not the easy way out. And consider Jesus. Think about, think about Jesus. He did what he knew the Father wanted him to do even when he could have chosen an easier way out. In all the ways, Jesus was a man of goodness, of that integrity, um, <clears throat> always, and he refused to deviate from what he knew the Father's will was. And man, that's hard. That's so hard to do. Because when I look at that, I go, I don't, I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not that good of a person because I don't, that's really hard for me. And oftentimes I don't, I vector away from maybe what I know God is calling me to do in some relationship or whatever it might be. But think about all these, all these ways that Jesus was his goodness was demonstrated because he didn't vector off from this opportunity to avoid the cross. Uh, remember the devil tempted him three times to take the easier route in the desert through popularity, uh, through a spectacular death-defying stunt, or through political power, but Jesus resisted and chose the path of the suffering servant, of the obedient son, he chose the identity that his father affirmed to him at his baptism, not the identity that was offered to him that, ooh, that, was, that would have been so, that's a way better identity for the short term. Um, we think of Simon Peter, remember when he's talking to Jesus and he says, he's told that Jesus is going to go to the cross and, and Peter kind of reprimands him and like gets after him. Um, and, and Peter tried to deflect him away from the whole idea of suffering, of crucifixion, but Jesus rebuked him. Or you think about the time when uh, Jesus' own mother Mary and his brothers and sisters uh, tried to come to the home where he was because he was engaged in this sort of embarrassing and risky public ministry. And Jesus claimed that his true mother and brother and sisters were those who obeyed the Father. Think about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, he longed desperately for any other option than what lay ahead of him the very next day but he chose the Father's will. When they arrested him, right before the crucifixion, he knew he could have called on a legion of angels to come rescue him, but he did not, because he was good. Even Pontius Pilate, the last minute, kind of dangled in front of him the possibility of release for Jesus when he was staring at the cross, and he refused. Do you see the, 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 the shape of goodness developing? It's much better than, thanks for not burning the cat. <laughs> it's this big, robust, profound, deeply compelling thing. Because lots of times, goodness isn't compelling in our culture, right? 
um, but it's deeply compelling. So it is those actions taken when we have the real option to choose the easier easier route, that's what we're talking about. That's goodness. So let's do this. Let's take a shift. We kind of have a little bit of an understanding of the shape of goodness. It's a little bit different shape than we thought. But I want to talk a little bit about um, the spiritual life, because here's the danger. Um, We all have like default models of what the spiritual life looks like. And so when someone talks about, I'm called toward goodness, I'm called toward faithless, I'm I'm called toward kindness, um, let me give you three models, and I think the first two are deficient. I think, they, I think they won't work at, a, at the end of the day, me internalizing these kind of things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, but I'm really tempted to go down the road. And here's, here's what I mean by it. The first model of the spiritual life is the spiritual life is about learning the right answers. You know what I mean by that? <clears throat> Getting the right information, true things, right? But that that's, if I do that, then I will be spiritually mature in my life, and so I assume that knowing new truths about God equals growing in my Christian faith. Um, this is, to be honest, this this was this is my default model in life. This this I don't know how I got it if I grew up with it or what, but my this is my default model. Like it, it easily resets to this, where I think if I listen to that sermon, if I read this book, if I have this experience, then then that will that will equal spiritual growth in my life. And, and so I, I think the goal is to inform my old mind instead of the goal being to form a new life. And I get those two mixed up. And I think in the West, right, we live in, I mean, we're in the information age, right? I've got this magic little computer in my pocket that I can access any piece of information in the world in a matter of seconds. And so information to me seems to be like the silver bullet. It's the key that'll unlock anything, and I can oftentimes assume that that's the same with my spiritual growth, but I could not be more wrong every time that I believe that. For Christians, the goal is not to, it's not to master the truth. The goal is that the truth would master me. Those are very different things, but they sound kind of the same to me at moments in my life, and so that the truth would so change me inside that I would actually become different in how I'm oriented toward like people and toward God and toward his world and all these <clears throat> different things. Now, is, is information important? Is knowledge important? Yeah, absolutely. It's completely important. It's, in fact, <clears throat> I would say the more you know, the more you can possibly grow so information, it's necessary for spiritual growth, but it's not sufficient. There are a lot of things in life that are necessary but not sufficient. It's necessary to have information and content and learning and all that. It's not sufficient, though, for your spiritual growth in your life. It, w- it would be like this. It would be like a biochemist thinking that he's an expert at romance because he can tell you what's going on inside a human brain chemically and you know, electronically when a person falls in love, even if he's never been in a relationship in his life. Like, you get the difference there. That's kind of what that's like. If I learn all this stuff, man, spiritual growth happens. 
And yet I, I've known a lot of people. I've been in seasons in my life where I feel like I've been learning a lot of stuff and yet something all of a sudden reveals, man, there's a lot of brokenness still inside me. It's not really translating to spiritual growth. So I think that model is sufficient, insufficient. It would, it would be like someone in the church, maybe a, you know, someone who would say, um, uh, you know, she can give you a textbook definition of the word faith. She can go to the book Hebrews and faith is this, you know. Um, she can tell you what you know, the difference between sanctification and justification are. And so she feels like, man, I'm, I'm growing in my faith. Well, no, not necessarily. That doesn't necessarily equate. And again, in the West especially, uh, I think we have this danger of assuming this model of the spiritual life. But again, if I'm not caring more for people who are in need, if I'm not learning how to forgive people in my life who have uh, wronged me, if, if I'm not more intensely seeking the heart of God to have that be my heart, it doesn't matter how much knowledge I have. I'm just not growing in this way. So the spiritual life, it's much more than coming up with the right answer. Second model that I would say is deficient <clears throat> is um, exerting our wills. Exerting our wills. And here's how, how I see this oftentimes as the churches. People will experience something Maybe it's a broken relationship, uh, something's going wrong with their, their child, or they're experiencing stress, you know, felt, I mean, real felt needs, and they come to church thinking, I'll get inspired, right? I'll hear a really good talk, and it'll be so inspiring that it'll give me the willpower <laughs> to change the relationship, to fix this, to stop being anxious, to stop worrying. Now, I think it's wonderful that people come to church for any reason, if it's because they want to stop worrying or whatever. But when they assume this is the model of the spiritual life, it fails and it lets them down. It assumes, again, that if I just get inspired, I'll be able to exert my will and fix all those problems. What's wrong with that? Well, first of all, it's, is it possible that all of those problems, the relationships and the, I mean, they're problems, aren't they? Is it possible that they're symptoms of a deeper problem? Jesus had the idea, he said, oh, no, 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 there's a much deeper problem than that. He called it the heart. Heart is like the core of you. If, if, if you go to the gym and you, you, know, you work out your core, that's the idea. It's like that's the center of like what makes everything else work and function well if my core is healthy. Your heart, biblically, that's your core to life. And see, the problem is that willpower will never work because all willpower can do is express what's in the heart. That's all it does right? Because there's, if this is willpower, the heart is underneath it. it. It can't change the heart. It can just express the heart. Now, your will can modify your behavior a little bit, <laughs> but it can't change the heart. And so if I don't, I won't have the right solution if I don't know what the actual problem is. And so that's why Jesus, Matthew 15, 19, he uses these words. He says, for out of the heart comes, this is, I hate this list, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. See, Jesus said that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That's the core issue. So all the information that I get that I love won't change the heart. <laughs> all the inspiration that I get to help my will, which it does help my will, it can't change the heart. That's the thing that's still underneath. 
So my will alone, I can't, again, I can alter behavior. I need something deeper. I need that life. Remember the video we were watching? I need that life outside of myself. It's like foreign life to somehow work its way into me. Somehow, I'm not even always sure what, how that, that, I need that life to be worked into me to go past the will, past the emotion, and get to the heart. Because if that could change, if that could change, oh my goodness, everything else is expressing that heart. So how does that happen? And so this, if this is true, this gets us, I think, to our third model. Let me read for you Luke 6.43, though, first. Jesus says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings up evil things stored up out of the evil stored in his own heart. He's saying the heart, it's the reservoir of of whatever comes out. That's where it's all being stored. That's the core. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So if the first model of just information doesn't work, if the second model of my willpower doesn't work because of the heart problem, this one might. This one is actual spiritual transformation, or you could say heart transformation. This is the spiritual life. For followers of Jesus, this is the model of the spiritual life. Transform means that something goes from one thing to a totally different thing. It's actually changed on a deep fundamental level. How does it happen? Well, all I'm told is it happens when I'm connected to the vine, right? Is that what Jesus said? If you remain in me and I in you, my, my, my life force in you, if you remain attached to me, that's all you need to know. I'm thinking, well, but what, how does this work and how are you going to And he's like, no, no, I take care of that. All you need to know is remain in me, and that's how it will work. Um, you're not going to live the life Jesus or live the Jesus life if the life of Jesus isn't infused in me. I'm not going to if the life of Jesus isn't infused in me. Well, how does that happen? Let me, let me just give you a few thoughts. This, this isn't um, an exhaustive list anyway, but let me just give you a few thoughts that this life transformation, it's lived, number one, in relationship with Jesus. <clears throat> now think about this. Jesus took these 12 guys, right? He took these 12 guys, and, and they're screwed up. We, you know, we know all that, all the, all the stuff with them. But he, he gets them, and he says, I'm going to change the entire world. Remember the video we were looking at? I'm gonna, and I'm going to use you as catalyst to get it going. Because I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send my spirit who's going to be in you. So first I need to change you, <laughs> Jesus says. And then you, with the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to help change the entire cosmos. And what's so interesting, listen to where it all began. Okay, let me read a couple passages and see if you can identify what, what the starting point is. Matthew 1, 16 through 18. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, and he said, what? Come follow me. Mark 2, 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. What's, what's the starting point? 
If there's any clue, let me read one more. Mark 3.14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. I mean, that's it. The starting point to the spiritual life, to real transformation happening, is being with Jesus. It begins with a relationship with Jesus. And again, there's a, sometimes there's a lot of confusion around this. Isn't, you, know, you know, people can say, well, I, like, what does that mean? You know, we talk about like being with Jesus or having, having a relationship with, thing, um, with him. Well, think about how do you have a relationship with anybody else in your life? If you have a meaningful relationship, I would say, number one, you're real with them, right? If you have a real authentic relationship with people, you share what things make you happy, what things make you sad, what, what things bring you joy, what things bring you, uh, break your heart or bring you down, what things make you proud, what things cause a shame in your life, um, you're real with them. You're open and you're honest with them. So just start by doing that and then listen to him. Listen to him speak and, and share his heart with you. Might be just the whisper of the Holy Spirit speaking to you. It might be through a, a fellow follower of Jesus giving you some words. Maybe most often it'll be through just learning as I'm reading scripture, learning his character. What is he like? What does he want for me? How, would it, how does he guide? What does he do as I, as I read scripture and he gives me direction? So it's my relation, in my relationship with Jesus, and I don't understand it all. I don't understand how it all works. <laughs> but I'm told if I'm in a relationship with him, there will be this power available for me to be transformed. Again, let me go back to John 15. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If a branch comes disconnected from the vine, it loses all the life-giving power. <clears throat> you, remember, you remember the first time you fell in love with somebody? Do you remember how everything changed? It's like you wanted to see that person multiple times a day. <laughs> you, wanted to, you wanted to share with them all the things that are going on in your life life like you you looked forward to those times together um i can't tell you and, and all of us have probably experienced this but sometimes i'll be talking to couples and you know they'll come in and they've been married for a number of years that well you know time's passed and we kind of took things you know for granted and uh you know things press in and we just kind of quit working on our relationship and it's just it's kind of more distant now and and it's in those times that it's really dangerous because uh they they give into things that they would never have given into had they maintained and worked on the relationship, right? We all know that. We've all been there. Think about when you first fell in love with Jesus and you were excited about it, right? Um, but then time passes and things press in and um, you kind of take it for granted and you just feel a little bit more distant. Um, and it's in those times that it's so dangerous because... You can give in to things that you would never give in to if you had worked on that closeness, on that connection. It's the exact same thing. And the power of transformation, it comes by just being with Jesus. So what I would suggest to you is, you know, again, especially going into Lent, you know, we talked about this a couple minutes ago. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I, you know, I heard someone say the other day, they were just in a very vulnerable point saying, 
I haven't read my Bible to just get something for me probably in a couple years. Um, and what I would say to you, if, if you're kind of at that place, just, you know, pick the book of John. Read one chapter. It'll take a night. It'll take you three minutes. Three minutes to do. <laughs> just read one chapter in John. But before you do, say, God, I want to encounter you. I just want to encounter you over these next three minutes. <laughs> and then when you're done, listen. Listen to what he might say. And then pray back to him what you think you <laughs> might maybe think he was saying to you. And then start to bring all of your normal stuff, just like when you first were dating that person and, and, and you wanted to talk to them about what happened at work. <laughs> and you wanted to talk to them about this. You just bring your normal stuff into that relationship <clears throat> with him. Because here's the reality is we become like the ones we spend time with. Uh, ever talk to a parent and, and they go, man, my kid's gone off the rails. And one of the first things they say is, they just started, you know, hanging out with these people, right? And all, all of a sudden I don't recognize them because the people you hang out with, the people, it just rubs off on you. I don't even know how it works, <laughs> but I just know that that does happen. The same thing is true with God. Same thing is true with God. The more time he's just normal stuff, <laughs> the more time he kind of starts rubbing off on you. I, I, I read this interesting um, article this last week. It was talking about, I don't know if you think it's true or not, that spouses um, start, start to look like each other. Have you heard this? Or like people start to look like their pets. You've, you've, you've probably seen funny pictures. I think there's less stuff there. But this, this, uh, this article was actually looking at their, that, that, that people actually start to look like each other. And in this article, I don't have time. I, I wish I could read it for you. But they basically said it's, little, it's a hundred little things. <clears throat> Couples who are, who are happy, who are more happy, develop very similar smile lines in their faces over 30, 40 years. Couples who, who are upset tend to mirror the same if it's frowning. They tend to both frown. And so 30, 40 years, they have similar looking faces. And the article talked about all of these different little things that you, you're going to start, which, you know, for some of you, that's worse news for one of you than the other. Um, <clears throat> but there's something to that. It rubs off on you. And so, you know, obviously be careful who you marry, <laughs> but be careful what God you pick. Be really, really careful what God you pick. Because here's the thing, if, if you pick money as your God, you're going to be reformed to look like greed. If, if, if you pick pleasure as your God, you're going to be reformed to look like lust. If you, if you pick uh, power, you're going to be remade into the image of something that, man, it's really cold and it's really hard. But if you pick Jesus as your God, you're going to be reformed to look like what? Oh, the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> That's what you're going to slowly start looking like just because you'll begin to look like someone who is truly good. <laughs> That's compelling. You'll begin to look like what, what Isaiah talked about in 58. He says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, Yahweh says, to loose the chains of injustice and unlock the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? 
when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then, listen to this, listen to how you'll serve as a community if you do that, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. That's goodness. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needy of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noon day. Man, again, that's compelling. I'd like to live like that. I'd like to live in a community that looks like that, breaking forth like the dawn. Man, that would be beautiful.